Andy, let's do it. Take your Bible to Luke chapter, you've been waiting all Christmas for this, chapter number two. Luke chapter number two is the Christmas story of Christmas stories. It's the text we force our kids to listen to before they get to open presents every Christmas morning in the Trudell household. And we want to make sure we focus that attention to Jesus. And uh, if you had to pick a passage to preach out of on Christmas Eve, you'd pick Luke 2. And uh, so that's what we're doing. And there's actually more to it. Uh, there's more to that plan. We've been, I've been planning this the whole month uh, to get to Luke 2 this morning on purpose. <clears throat> we've been looking at this idea of having a Merry Christmas and actually having a Merry Christmas. We've defined the word Merry to be cheerful encouragement. <clears throat> Excuse me as I clear my throat. Cheerful encouragement. And uh, can we, in the, the hardship of life, in the, the road of life, or we saw this morning in uh, 10 o'clock, the, the race of life, can we truly have a merry Christmas, a cheerfully encouraged season, or do we just need to pretend? And so for the last couple weeks, last three, and now this morning, the fourth week, We've been tracking down some characters and watching them walk through uh, the difficulty of their particular Christmas season, the first Christmas, and we've been learning different secrets from them. We've been watching their lives kind of like a fly on the wall through the inspiration of Scripture and just seeing what they did and how they responded to the interruptions and disruptions of Christmas. And uh, from the first week, we learned from Mary. Uh, Mary was this young lady, uh, a teenager at best, uh, who had been her whole entire life re-altered, re written, redrafted by the Lord. That angel shows up and tells her, hey, listen, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to take your, your dreams and your plans and all the happily ever after, and I'm going to redraft it. And Mary says, be it unto me according to thy will. Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. And so we learn from Mary the secret to a Merry Christmas is surrender, just allowing the Lord to have his way. And uh, letting him be king is a theme that's kind of developed over the last couple of weeks. And then we learn the following week, two weeks ago, from Joseph. Uh, Joseph was a man who seems to have woken up every morning and just asked the Lord, what do you want me to do today? And uh, he, his life and his secret uh, that he taught us was one of, of courageous obedience, just walking in the way that you ought to go, doing what God has called you to, being obedient, being a just individual. And every time we intersect with Joseph, it's just what you find. Uh, Joseph, uh, later on in Luke chapter 2, we won't get to it today or even Wednesday, you'll have to read it on your own, but later on, Man, there's a warning, and Joseph's got to go to Egypt. Uh, that might be in Matthew chapter 1 or 2. Uh, but in the Christmas story, he's got to uproot his whole family and go take care of them. And you never find Joseph belly aching or complaining about the circumstances. He just does what he's asked. And so when it comes to Christmas, a secret that we learn from Joseph is one of just righteous obedience. Just do what God expects of you. Walk in the way that you ought to go. Follow according to the things he's told us. And then last week, and really to me, I don't know why, I just have not been able to shake last week's message. I'm not saying the delivery was great, but the truth was certainly a powerful one. We learned about kingdom living. We, we saw this... <clears throat> This juxtaposition between nobility, we had the, uh, the Magi, the men who'd come from east, uh, the east in Persia or ancient Babylon, and, and then we saw King Herod sitting on his throne, and uh, both of these groups of people had uh, certain regency and nobility and power and authority, and, and yet what we see is one group is unwilling to bow. Whereas one group traveled 750 miles in chase of a 500-year-old prophecy for the sole purpose of bowing. And uh, we learned the idea that accepting Christ's kingship, allowing him to be Lord, allowing him to be on the throne, is really the secret for a Merry Christmas. Because you can pretend, and this is what stuck with me. I've, we've gone through the stores this week and heard the Christmas music about Jesus and Excelsius Deo playing in Walmart. And the fact of the matter is, what that is... 
That's just Herod pretending. That's Herod pretending to worship. That's Herod singing the songs of Jesus, but no intention of ever getting off his throne. And that's so crucial. You can pretend to worship Jesus and come to church and sing the songs and and celebrate the nativity and even have one in your house. But if you're not willing to get off the throne of your own heart and life, then listen, Christmas is actually a threat to you. Because if he came as the king of the universe, the creator God, then that means that you're not on the throne and you're not going to be king. And so really laying down our our authority and laying down our kingship is so incredibly important to having a Merry Christmas. Uh, I hope this series has been a blessing to you. It's certainly been a blessing to me. One of the things I always find so unique about Christmas is there's only so many passages. I say this every now and then. There's only so many passages you can preach out of, but yet every single year God brings some beautiful truth out or some thought out. And this year, here's what we've done on purpose. The unique thing about this Christmas series is that we haven't yet made it to the nativity. We haven't touched it yet. Now, there was a brief moment in our text last week where the wise men come and find the child Jesus, not in the nativity, excuse me, and uh, just for a moment, but the nativity has been intentionally absent from this year's Christmas story on purpose. Uh, That's the focus this morning, Christmas Eve. We left it off on purpose, not just to save the best for last, but listen, to save the biggest secret for last. That's been the heart's desire. So far, all we've seen, and I think you'll agree with me, all we've seen is the problems. All we've seen is the inconveniences, and there are more in the story this morning. There's taxation and traveling and so forth in Luke's uh, account of it in Luke chapter number two. But we've been tracking the days leading up to Christmas with Joseph and Mary. Joseph finds her with child and the different stories. But we have yet to break into the actual moment where the Christ child comes and laid in a manger. We have not got there. We really haven't seen the joy of Christmas yet. We've seen hardship. We've seen obedience. We've seen surrender, we've seen worship and journeying and forsaking kingdoms, but we really haven't seen, now we've told you, Mary had faith, but she hasn't had sight yet, right? She's, she is surrendering, but hasn't seen the child yet. And that's a really important truth because, uh, and we haven't seen that joy break forth because the joy of Christmas happens not when Mary surrenders or Joseph obeys, but the joy of Christmas happens when the incarnate son of God breaks into humanity. That's where it becomes worth it. Up until now, we've just seen obedience. Up until now, we've just seen Mary lay down her autonomy and say, okay, do what you want. But there hasn't been that glorious breaking through moment where the the cries of the Christ child pierce the night and break the silence. We haven't got there. We've just seen a young couple bereaved of their dreams and plans. We've seen nobility kind of stripped of their, their, their nobility and rule. But when the baby comes, listen, this is key, all the labor pains are worth it. All the surrender and all the interruption and all of the difficulty, when the baby comes, it all becomes worth it. Mom and dad, isn't that true? All the labor pains, uh, just think with me today. If you're not a mom or a dad, just kind of borrow their, their uh, intellect for just a moment. But moms and dads, think with me about your most difficult childbearing experiences. Maybe you had to be bedridden or had some, some difficult circumstance. For us, I don't tell you the story to be sad for us. I just, I'm going to develop something beautiful. For us, it was Abigail, okay, our, our, our youngest child. For us, Abigail is a little bit like a Benjamin to us. You think about Jacob. Jacob had lost his son, Joseph, and God gave him consolation in, in Benjamin. And uh, what you find through the story of Joseph and, or, uh, uh, Jacob and Benjamin, he's terrified to lose Benjamin. He won't let Benjamin go down to Egypt. And there's, there's just a protectiveness about him. And 
For us with Abigail, we had just had our first miscarriage. And again, I don't mean to make you feel sorry for us, but we had just had a miscarriage. We were very uninterested in uh, having another child at least any time soon. And in very short order after that, we found out we were expecting. And uh, honestly, I was terrified. My, my heart was very wounded. My, my mind was really struggling with that. I don't often, there's not a lot of seasons in my life I can look back and say, man, I asked God why a lot in that season. In this particular season, I did. It didn't make sense to me why we would lose a child and now have another child. And we went to our first doctor's appointment and they confirmed with what I had feared. They said, well, with her having just lost a child, it's, it's likely you'll lose this child. And so essentially for, for nine months, I held my breath. And this pregnancy was a difficult one. Two different times, the doctors sent us to the emergency room. They thought we were losing her. And, and it was just a very, very difficult time. But here's the, the picture. But the moment that little girl broke the silence in that hospital, listen to me, she shattered all my questions answered all my fears, all my doubts and questions toward God were washed away, all the painful moments of pregnancy were made beautiful, all the fearful moments were washed away, the doubtful moments were replaced with a deeper faith, and that little girl came into our life and made all the last nine months of suspense and pain and hospital visits and what's going to happen made it all beautifully worth it. And that's actually why Abigail's name is Abigail. It means father's joy. Because when the child was born, delivery was, when the the child was delivered, the labor pains were worth it. This is how we've approached Christmas series this year. We've walked through the labor pains. We've seen the disruptions and the painful interruptions, but this morning we get to drink deeply from the moment that that child breaks into humanity and makes all of the suffering and all of the pain worth it. The moment that joy breaks into disruption, the moment that mercy touches earth, the singular moment in human history that made every terrible experience of your life and their life beautifully redeemable. Because when the child was born, all of the labor pains were worth it and meaningful. And that's truly the secret for this morning. And I know I normally give you that at the end. I'm giving it to you now. How did a young virgin girl give up her testimony to carry this child? Well, because of who was coming. And when Jesus came, it was totally worth it. She didn't care what people thought about her testimony because she is now carrying the Christ child. The Christ child is in her arms. When, when Anna and Simeon in the later part of this chapter see the Christ and declare him as such, Mary doesn't care if people think that she has an illegitimate son. He's here. It's all worth it. Why would Joseph take the fall and marry the girl who's not carrying his child? Because the God of all earth was now in flesh. He was here and his presence made it worth it. Why would kings step down from their thrones or nobles abandon their kingdoms? Because that baby laying in the manger, the birth makes the labor pains worth it. And his birth makes all of our travail worth it as well. Because listen, someday we too will see him face to face. We won't see him as a baby, but we will see him as the king coming back to this place, stepping into our humanity, and we may not behold the face of the baby face to face, but we'll behold the face of God face to face. We will see him and we will know him. And like Mary, we will someday embrace his physical body. Listen to me, church family. On the day we lay hold on him, when he comes into our world like he came into theirs, all of our doubts will be replaced. All of our fears erased. All of our questions answered, all of our grieving over. Because when he comes, it's all made worth it. And let me just say, that's the secret for this morning. We haven't even seen the text. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to vote. We can end the message now and you can go home. We haven't even had to read the Bible. Or we can pray and jump into Luke 2. How many of you say, let's just go home? Raise your hand. Just be honest. Okay. Joe, I see you right here. All right. I knew some of you would be courageous. All right, but the rest of us, I'm assuming you want to see it in the text. So let's pray and we'll dive in. God, guide us.
Thank you for making it make sense. Lord, in my life and in their lives, there are seasons we've walked through that can be best described with the word travail. Lord, it's painful, it's difficult, it's laborious, it's long. There's no no benefit in the immediate to it. And yet when you stepped in, you erased all of the suffering that Mary had endured. You made everything make sense when you came as lamb. And God, for us, you're coming back as king. And Lord, we long for that day. The whole earth groaneth for that. Lord, we saw that in Sunday school. God, guide us this morning to a place of peace, knowing that the true joy isn't only that you're coming back. And you're going to be our God, and we're going to be your people, and you're going to set up an earthly kingdom forever, and you will reign on this earth, and we will be with you, and we will know you just like Mary did. <clears throat> and I pray, God, that this story will bring us courage in our travail, courage in our situation, God, to walk forward knowing that you pierced the silence one time. And God, the next time you break that silence is not by the cry of a child, but by the trumpet of a king. And so, Lord, we long for that day. And on that day, you'll make everything beautiful. But for now, Lord, let us hold to the promises that you've given to us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. So since we're going to not go home after the introduction, we're going to dive in. What I want you to do is look at verse number one. Let's just walk through our text this morning. There's a ton here. It's such a cool passage. And so read it with me if you would. Luke chapter number two, verse number one says, and notice again, the interruptions are still present. It says, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That's not a good thing, okay? And uh, how many of you recognize that tax day is coming, right? At some point where, you know, it's like, oh, Christmas, New Year's, taxes. That's what we're heading toward. It says in uh, uh, verse number two, and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor over Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Now, listen, that might just look like an inconvenience. And I will say, that was an inconvenience to those in the story. Uh, Joseph and Mary were already heavily taxed by already the, the Roman system and the Jewish system. Uh, and now every Jew is expected at their own dime to travel to their, their native city where their family is from and go pay an additional tax. And so this is not just an inconvenience, though. This is part of prophecy being fulfilled. Joseph is in Nazareth. Mary's with child. But that child has been promised, like we saw a couple of weeks ago, Micah 5, 2, to be born in Bethlehem. And so by the providence of God and the hardship of life, but those two oftentimes go hand in hand, Mary and Joseph are then brought down to Bethlehem. Look at it. Verse number four, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. This prophecy that we saw a couple, I think it was last week actually, with Herod. This is the one that the wise men show up and they ask, hey, where is he that's born king of the Jews? And he sends the scribe, Herod does. And these scribes come back and they say, yeah, we found it, Micah 5, 2. Uh, Bethlehem Epertal, though thou be little among the nations, there's going to come forth a king out of Bethlehem. And so he's in Bethlehem. And I was talking to my wife about that this week and she brought up something I don't, I don't think I had noticed before. I, I think I mentioned that the Bible says that Herod and all of them were troubled. But why do you think the scribes were troubled? I know why Herod was troubled, right? He had no intention of getting off his throne. There's a king coming, and he has rightful uh, prophetic claim to this, this throne, 500-year-old prophecy. That's definitely a threat. But think about the scribes and the Pharisees. Why are they threatened? Well, because the king gets to decide how worship works. And here comes a new king, and they're in charge. It's the same exact situation, different realm, right? Herod doesn't want to get off this throne, but the scribes don't want to get off their throne. But look at verse 5. It says, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with 
child. So listen, Mary and Joseph have to travel down. I know the Bible says the word up, and that's important, just kind of a freebie for you. Whenever anybody went to Jerusalem, they went up to Jerusalem because it's the city set on a hill. And so even though geographically they're north in Galilee, they come down, but then they have to ascend into Jerusalem. So whenever it says up, but 90 miles to the south, did I mention she's nine months pregnant? And they're not just going to run down there in their minivan, you know, load up in the Honda Odyssey, uh, 90 miles. That's what, an hour and a half will be there before lunchtime. That's not how that worked. They went by donkey, maybe if they had a donkey. They traveled by foot. At least one of them's walking by foot. Uh, but did I mention she's nine months pregnant, traveling all this way. And they're going to end up there. We know this from the rest of the text. We'll talk about it Wednesday night. Uh, they're going to be there for a long time. They're going to be there the entirety of the days of her purification, at very least. That's 40 days for a man-child. They're not just leaving for a quick rundown to, you know, pay some taxes down over here on the south side of town. They're traveling 90 miles by foot, maybe by donkey. She's nine months pregnant. They're going to be there a long time. That's an interruption. That's a disruption. But God is doing something beautiful. Look at verse 6. And so it was <laughs> that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. So they're on the road, they make it to town. She doesn't even get to be home to have this baby. She's out of town. She's traveling. Remember when my wife was pregnant, we were supposed to go on an airplane or something. We we're going to go to Florida. And they were like, no, 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 she's eight months pregnant. She can't travel. They wouldn't let her travel because they don't want her to be away. Well, here's Mary, 90 miles away from home. Mom's not there. Her bed's not there. Her family's not there. Possibly Joseph had extended family, but they didn't even have room for them to be there. And so here's Mary having a baby. And what the verses later on will tell us is some kind of a sheep stable. And we'll discuss that in just a second. But listen, there's no room in the inn. There's no room for them. But look at verse seven. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So Mary gives birth to the Christ child, not in a palace, but for all intents and purposes, in somewhat would history would record to be some kind of a cave. Now, I've stood on the eastern hills of this city, Bethlehem, and uh, the way that they would do it, there's these beautiful outcroppings of rocks, and there's these tons of caves, hundreds of caves on the eastern hills that face Jerusalem. And uh, these sheep herders would go under the rock structure, and oftentimes they build out the rock structure with wood, and this is where they would keep the animals. And it's a beautiful place, but think about this. Here's the creator God of the universe born in a stable, laid in a, in a carved out trough that feeds animals. But think about how much of a contrast that is of expectations. Last week, we saw the, uh, the Magi coming from, Pal uh, coming from uh, Persia, uh, 700 miles. And their first assumption is, well, the king is born. Let's go to the palace. He's got to be there. He's the king. But instead of the palace, Jesus is born in a place that keeps sheep. Why do you think that is? You think that's accidental or do you think that's part of the purpose? Because yes, that baby came as the king, but he didn't come to be king. That's the next time he comes, he'll come as king. But he came to be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If he was coming to be king, he'd have gone straight to the palace. But instead, he's born in this place that cares for sheep. And he's wound in, in cloth that's used to bind up broken sheep. This is the picture of your Messiah coming. Verse number eight brings us the characters that I want to highlight this morning. We're going to follow these people. Look at verse eight. And there was in the same country, that same hill country, that same backwater of the Roman Empire, that same obscure side of a small obscure town, there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by 
night. This is such a unique and intentional group of people. Please don't lose this. Shepherding was reserved for the very old, the very young, or the physically incapacitated, right? Excuse me. As a shepherd, you essentially just stand there. You watch sheep. You clean up after them. You protect them if necessary. But it's not where you send the able-bodied young men. They, their, their life is, u- is used up in, in skilled labor, in hard labor, but you got a tiny little brother named David, put him in the, in the, uh, the fields with the sheep. It's not a hard job. We're going to go to war, put that little boy out there. And this is the group of people, this unimportant group of people, out in the, the graveyard shift, in this countryside backwater of Rome, and the holy angels sent from God come to them. Look what it says in verse 9. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. What a contrast again of expectations. What a contrast of value systems. God commissions his holy angels to announce the arrival of the single greatest moment in human history. And he sends them to shepherds working the graveyard shift in an insignificant village. The creator didn't send the angels to Herod. He didn't send the angels to the high priest. He didn't send them to Caesar or the Roman proctor. He sent the angels to tell a group of very young, very old, or physically incapacitated Jewish men that the king himself had come. Why? Because God loved the world. God's not impressed by Herod. God doesn't need Herod. God doesn't need nobility to recognize him. He's God. He walks into humanity. It doesn't matter if they recognize him as God as far as his, like he needs something from them. He needs to be recognized. He doesn't need anything from man. He stepped in, sent his son into a a stable and, and told the shepherds, not the kings, because God isn't impressed with nobility. What he's seeking, he says this later on, this baby grows up. And he says, God is seeking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Doesn't matter what mountain or what city you worship him in, God's looking for those who will worship him, not nobility. Look again at verse number nine. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And notice their very reasonable response. And they were sore afraid. That's exactly what Mary did. And I think that's exactly what you and I would do, right? We talked about that with Mary. How, how terrifying is that to be brought into the presence of holiness? To, to that, none of us have ever experienced that. Uh, brought into the presence of just sheer holiness. But notice what happens in verse 10. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, same conversation that the angel had with Mary. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. That phrase, good tidings, is where we get the same phrase, euangelion, good news, gospel. He says, I bring you good news. I bring you gospel uh, of great joy, which shall be to all people. And listen, here's where the joy starts to come. Up until now, we've seen obedience and we've seen surrender and we've seen people stepping off thrones and so forth. We've seen taxes and travail and caves and shattered testimonies. But at the arrival of the king, the angels say, great news, it's time for joy. Great news, he who brings joy is come. And notice what verse 11 says, probably my favorite verse of the whole text. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, Notice the title that's given to Jesus. Look at at the announcement to common man that the Son of God has come. Do you notice the title that he's given? For unto you this day in the city of David, or for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a, would you read the word out loud? Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Again, of all the titles that God could have scripted for the angels to say, they didn't say king, though he was. They didn't say judge. Though he is and will be, they said Savior. We got to get this in our mind. Don't lose this thought. 
There is no doubt, there is no way you can contest the reality that God scripted what the angels would say. God didn't just send the angels out there to kind of like spitball it, like, hey, just kind of show up and tell them what you think. No, God said, listen, I don't know if it's Gabriel, I don't know who it was. You go stand out there, show yourself to the shepherds and tell them that my save, the Savior is coming. He picked that word on purpose. The father told them to use that title. Look at verse number 12. And there shall be a sign. This is so cool too. This shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This is so important. Here's this group of people, same, same hill country, same, same general area. And he says, I want you to go back toward town and you're going to find a baby, but not just any baby. It's going to be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And that baby is going to be lying in a food trough for animals. Why would he give them this sign? That's the word he used. And this shall be a sign unto you. Think about this. Mom and dad, maybe under your Christmas tree right now, maybe tomorrow morning, there's presents. And on each present, there is a sign for who that gift belongs to. I'll put on there, I'll say to Carter from dad. Why do I put that sign on there? Why would God tell the, the shepherds, go and don't just find any baby, but find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. You know those things you use to bind up a, a, a lamb's broken arm? That, that you're gonna find. And, and he's not just gonna be over here. He's gonna be lying in a manger. And so why would God give such specificity? Why do you give specificity on your gifts? Here's why. You want them to know who that gift belongs to. You want them to make sure they get the gift you gave. And here's what the father does. It's almost like that to and from sign. The, the, God wanted the, the shepherds to know this gift is yours. It's this child. It's this particular gift. It's not just any baby in Bethlehem. It's that baby because that baby is not just a baby. That baby is the gift that saves all humanity. You notice how intentional God is about this? He doesn't just want them wandering in and finding anybody. He wrote them a, he wrote them a to and from gift sign on the baby Jesus. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there were with the angels, or the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, notice what they say. And some people say they sing. I, I won't contest that. It does say they said, verse 14 says, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now understand this. He didn't say, hey, good news. Y'all can get along now. That wasn't goodwill among men. Notice what he said? Goodwill toward men. Here's why. Because God had to be able to forgive them. Yesterday, we talked about it in our soul winning meeting. Uh, uh, Pilate, when he is, he is addressing Jesus, he says this of Christ. I find no fault in him. Well, fine. But he finds fault in you. And you and I can be like, oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. I, I like Jesus. But the fact of the matter is we are all sinners. We have a sin nature and we've all sinned. And goodwill toward men is not possible aside from Jesus. God cannot have goodwill towards sinful people. He's the judge. And as judge, his sole responsibility as judge is to judge according to the law. And God cannot have goodwill toward those who have broken his law. Not because he's not good, but because he is good. He is holy and holiness demands that sin be paid for. And the beautiful news on that night and the good news, the great joy is that he has come to be a savior so that man might have goodwill, not amongst each other, but from God. That God can now, because of this baby born, and he'll grow up as a as under the law, perfect in every way, and die in your place so that God can have goodwill toward men. So that there can be peace from the creator to his creation. Because man must be redeemed. And that's why the angel said he is coming as a savior. Look at verse 15. It says, and it came to pass 
As the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let's do it. That's in the Greek. He said, let us now go into Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. Let's go. Don't waste any time. Forget the sheep. Drop your staff. Let's hightail it into town and go find the babe that has the name on it, right? We're looking for swaddling clothes and in a stable and in a manger. We're going to go find this child. Notice this redefining moment. I love this. It says in verse 17, and when they had seen it, oh, forgive me, verse 16. It says, and it came, and they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So here's what they do. Christmas morning, they run, they check the gift tag. Okay, baby, manger, swaddling clothes, that's mine. That's the baby he sent me to find. That's the gift God sent to us. That's the savior of humanity, goodwill toward men, that's him. And notice what happens to them. Their lives are radically transformed. It's so cool. Look at it. Verse 17. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying, which was told them concerning the child. And all that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So here's what they do. They come in. It doesn't tell us how long they were there, but they bombard this woman who has just given birth. Right? And for all the moms and dads out there who've, who've experienced that, right? At like 2.30 in the morning, the nurses walk in, throw the lights on. You know, you're like, no, i just fallen asleep. You know what I'm talking about? Imagine having a bunch of stinky shepherds show up in your, your delivery room. And they're checking the gift tag. It's them. They're so excited. The Bible says that they leave and they tell abroad everyone that they had found the Christ child. This is so unique to me. We all have, can you imagine what this moment did to these shepherds? We all have stories, right? Maybe you ladies probably do too, but I know in the, in the man realm, right? We've all got stories that we tell our kids over and over and over again, right? You're like, hey, we, we kind of have this joke at my house. Uh, uh, I'll tell them, hey, did you know, I'll tell Emma, hey, did you know I killed a bear in this shirt? And Emma's like, Ugh, I don't want to hear this story again. Let me tell you about the time I killed a bear. And I just go over and over again. It just said nauseam. Could you imagine the shepherds? Hey, Billy, did I ever tell you about that time Uncle John and I were in the show? Yeah, we've heard it a million times. You told us about it. Yeah, angels and this, you know, the, the shepherd. This, this moment radically transformed the rest of their life. They ran out into the, she- into the, the town and told everyone they could that, that they had met the Messiah. Listen, when you meet the Messiah, and here's the application, you become a messenger of that, that beautiful truth. And, and we do that with everything else naturally. Man, we try a great restaurant. Oh, man, I got to tell you about this place. Uh, I just did this with Mo. Mo was in Santa Barbara, and I was like, there you are, Mo. I was like, Mo, you got to go try Norton's Deli. Did you do it? Oh, he lied to me. He said he would. Um, so reckoning day for you, Mo. Um, but we'll do that. Oh, I love this restaurant. You got to try it out. We'll do that. We get a, you know, a, a, a new mattress or some new thing, and we're like, oh, you got to hear it. It's so great. For these shepherds, they couldn't help but tell. Because when something that beautiful happens, a gift like that is given, you become a messenger. So again, this isn't the message, but let me ask you. If you've encountered the Christ, if you've received the gift given, proclaimed by the angels, peace on earth, you have peace with God because of his salvation, that should make you a messenger. It should make you accountable. And, and let me say this too. There probably wasn't a pastor there saying, now you've seen him, go tell everybody. There wasn't any obligation. It was, it was reflective. It was, he's here. We got to tell somebody. And for Christians, he's coming. We got to tell somebody. 
that they can come and know the same Messiah that you and I know. That we can, they can have the same peace with God. You and I have peace with God. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes, you know, we'll have conflict with our spouse or conflict with somebody else. And that kind of robs our peace kind of in a small way. But isn't it a beautiful thing, Christian, to go to bed every night knowing you have peace with God? What a privilege. What a joy that your neighbor doesn't know. They're terrified to death. I mean, they're, they're, they don't know where they're going. But two addresses down, you do. And at least, at very least, be the shepherds who go out and tell everybody. They may never come. It doesn't record that anybody came to see the kid. I don't mean to be irreverent, the, the Christ child. It doesn't say anybody did, but they went and they told. They shared the news. Listen, we become messengers of that good news naturally. Um, but I want you to see as these men leave, notice the mother of Jesus. This is cool to me. Look at verse 19. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. Mary didn't see the angels on the hillside. Mary probably, and I think you can assert this fairly confidently, hasn't seen an angel in nine months. And God sends these shepherds barging into this birth story. I don't know what it was like to try to find a place to have a baby, right? I don't know what panic or, you know, what kind of anxiety they had experienced that night. You know, you see some of the shows and he's knocking on the door and he's knocking on this door and nobody here. I don't know if that's how that happened, but I know it wasn't a, I wasn't, it wasn't a silent night, <laughs> right? I mean, anybody ever been in a room with a baby being born? It's not a silent night. It's been a stressful, anxious moment. And these people barge in and they're like, we just saw the host of heaven right over there. And the angels told us we'd find this, this child. And this is the Christ child. You know what Mary does? She keeps all these things in her heart and ponders them. She is reaffirmed. She is being affirmed by the father that this is what I promised. This is who I promised. And as we close this morning, notice the outlook on Christmas from these normal, ordinary, everyday people. Look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So listen, and our takeaway, we said in the beginning, but the birth of this child makes cheerful encouragement possible because when he came, he changed everything. When he arrived, he made so many things become new. But listen to me, Christian, when he comes again, he will make all things new. He won't just bring salvation. He will bring his kingdom with him. And that was where the Jews were confused. Okay, so he's here to be king. No, no, no. He wasn't born in the palace. He was born where the sheep go because he came to be the lamb. But when he comes back, he's coming as king. And, and, and just like their silence, right? We talked about the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. Uh, 400 years of silence, 400 years of waiting. And that silence is broken by Jesus. And as I said in the beginning, our silence, well, we've been sitting in silence. The canon of scripture closed in the end of the first century, 2,000 years ago. And we've been waiting. And someday that silence will be broken, not by the cry of a child, but by the trumpet of a king. And I want to read you these verses and we're done. We'll go to baptism. 2 Corinthians 4, 14 says this, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. God's sending you through some things so that God would be glorified. Verse 16, for which cause, 2 Corinthians 4, if you want to go there, it says in verse 16, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, Mary no doubt tired, Joseph no doubt anxious, though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. And here's why. 
for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. That's what God calls the hardships of our life. This light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In the suffering of this life, there is eternal glory that is coming. While we look not on the things which are seen in this life, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, your suffering, your house, the hardship, temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray.